This is God's word, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose stream makes, streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Zechariah 8, 3-5. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, we sit in these chairs um, and we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And yet your story over and over again reminds us, and that's why we keep coming back, it reminds us that we are more loved and accepted in Christ, Jesus, than we ever imagined. And so sitting here this morning and attempting to hold those two things together, we need the help of your Holy Spirit, we need your mysterious inner working that we might know that what is true of us through Jesus is something that, that we can actually live with, we can actually embody, and we can actually live as if it's true. So whether we come with, um, in a sort of lamenting, sad, grieving place this morning, whether we come happy, whether we come um, because we've had good news this week or whether we've had bad news, whether we come just sort of with an element of being confused and discombobulated, or whether we come with a sort of focus or a sense of how real you are. Whether with doubt or faith, we pray that you meet us in this time in such a way that our lives might be changed. Meet us with your grace in an ungracious world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so the question of the week last week, you know, this... this you have a chance to fill out that card today, and I hope you do, because it says, what food is sinful? What is sinful food? That'll be fun to talk about next week. This week, um, the question that you answered uh, last Sunday was, what's something you do just because? You know, we're talking about your downtime, your leisure time. What's something you do just because? And we had a bunch of different answers here. Someone said, I fill out these cards. 
Someone said, I eat chocolate, of course. Someone said, I bake for people. Someone said, I help others. And someone said, I take horrendous selfies on my friends' phones. I like that. That's funny. So, you know, what do we do on our time off? In the book that we are using as a springboard for this series, David Zoll talks about what's going on in our culture, and he points out the sense in which we seem to, when in our time, in our downtime from work, we seem to be clocking in to another kind of white-knuckling kind of work. And he puts some words to this, and he says, alongside the spiritualization of exercise, a related trend has emerged extreme exercise. Boutique outfits like CrossFit and hot yoga demand fierce commitment to extraordinarily punishing routines, promising to transform not just the body, but the entire person. He's getting at, and you might wonder and and judge whether that's true or not, or whether you've tasted some of that, he's getting at kind of something in our culture about how we're dealing with our downtime. He says, one of my favorite humor websites ridiculed this dynamic brilliantly in a video about a fictional new fitness tracker called Nike Run Logic Plus, which tells a person not just how far they're running, but why they run. The Nike Run, this is from the uh, video, the Nike Run Logic Plus pinpoints the desperate psychological demons at the root of your exercise routine, (laughs) goes the pitch. The potential motivations listed by the app include constant shame, still single, and disappointed father. Before sharing the mock testimonial of one user, I'm super afraid that my friends don't really like me. I ran 27 miles today. I feel feel nothing. So is he... Is he onto something? Your laughter, I think, suggests that he's touching an accurate nerve. He even gets into explaining how there's a this kind of a wave of research on play and how you know books are flying off the shelves about how we really should play more. You know, you sense almost some of the irony in how I'm saying that. You really should play. I should play more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should play. I should be more lighthearted and less serious. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna do it really hard. And he says. Ordering someone to have fun, of course, is a guaranteed way to ensure they don't. The second you attach a desired outcome to play, or the second it becomes a tactic or a strategy for improved performance, it becomes yet another activity to put on your to-do list, another arena, arena for success or failure, another law. And so there's a sense in which and you can, you know, all kinds of other examples, I, need to, I don't need to keep listing them, how our downtime activities become just another way we're stepping onto the treadmill of life's enoughness, of the pass-fail test of, I'm okay, I'm lovable, I'm who I think I should be. Well, if this is all true, then what do we need to hear? What in this moment of this kind of you know, way of dealing with our, our downtime. What do we need to hear from God? How does God, how might God speak into this? And the two passages that we just read, they functioned in the past and in the present, but they came out of times of great turmoil for the people 
of whom they were written and for whom they were written. And they function, these two passages of Psalm 46 and Zechariah 8, they functioned as visions and pictures, reassuring visions and pictures for people who were extraordinarily overwhelmed because they were getting nowhere, they were hopeless, and it was very clear that injustice was winning. And these images of Psalm 46 and Zechariah 8 are given to the people in these kinds of times. Maybe you can relate to looking around the world and feeling like the good just isn't winning out and wondering, is, are things kind of going backwards or are they going forwards with the way the world is constructed And both of these things that we're given, so Psalm 46 and Zechariah 8 today, they hold in common some things. They both picture, as they give voice to something that's to encourage those who are deeply overwhelmed and troubled and hopeless, they both offer a picture of God's dwelling in a city that's radiating peace. They both have that language. I don't know if you caught that. The idea that God's present in this world, and that because of that, it's, things are working the way they should. And each passage then, as it kind of deals with that, and as, as both of them wrestle with mountains and city of God, as they do that, both of them give us one brief picture, one brief portrayal of a human response to God's dwelling in this world. Both of them give you a human response. The first one is, be still and know that I am God. The second one is, play. Be still and play. Words spoken to overwhelmed, hopeless, worn out, exhausted people in an unjust world. Let's listen to this a little more closely, one at a time. So first, Psalm 46 is saying, in the middle of of the turmoil, saying, be still and know that I am God. What Psalm 46 does, if you look carefully, is it portrays signs of utter chaos. The earth gives way. The mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Waters roar and foam. Mountains quake with their surging. These are images that capture how we feel. How humankind has always felt when, you know, the bad guys are winning. When we feel maybe within our own hearts and our own just psychology or maybe within our family or maybe within our city or maybe in our world, as you look at the paper, absolute chaos, no anchor, no stability, no safety. And as you feel that way, you might think in today's world, and you might even hope and imagine that if, if there is a good, just, peace-bringing God, that that God is going to come to you and say, yeah, I know it's bad. You need to suck it up and get out there and resist some more. This message is surprising because it's not, hey, yeah, it's bad, Get up and meet every injustice with resistance, every action with a counteraction, with, a, with revenge. Every No, it's very counterintuitive. 
God dwells, and so be still and know that I am God. It's surprising. It's counterintuitive. Um, because I'm a Christian, I imagine that when I die, and I think this is accurate for the Christian imagination, when I die, I'm going to see God or experience God in some way face to face. I imagine, and I'm pretty sure this will have some parallels to the actual experience, that there will be a sense in which God's goodness overwhelms me. Maybe I get little hints and tastes in my short life on earth of what this is like, if, my, if I'm paying attention. I might get small droplets, small glimpses, but when I see God face to face, I will be brought into a realm where I, everything kind of clicks and where it's almost, I picture it being like beams of something like sunlight, the goodness just coming in and piercing into all that I am with a sense of everything filled up to completion and flowing out in a sense of, oh, that's right. Now I get it all. Now all the things that were imperfect, you know, they all click. Everything just clicks into place and I go, Oh, duh. <laughs> yes. And I want to share that. I want to express that. And I think that part of God stepping in to this psalm, I don't know if you notice, in Psalm 46, these words, be still and know that I am God, it moves from like third person to God in first person. So there's a narrator, but then all of a sudden it's God. So in the midst of all the turmoil, all of a sudden it just be still and know that I am God. The tone changes. And I get a sense that by God bringing this to us through this psalm, there's a sense of saying, start practicing so that when you meet God face to face, you'll know something of what to do. I think that probably what they're going to have to do with me is pull me aside and say, hey, we got another live one here. We got to We've got to bring him to 101, you know. We've got to bring him to the class for, uh, the remedial class on being still and know that I am God. Because this guy has no practice. Enjoying God's presence. You know, this, you won't believe this guy. They'll be talking about me. You won't believe this guy. He crammed every extra spare second of his life with more of himself and his plans and his stresses. He really needs to know how to be still and know that I am God. Maybe some of you don't like this because you're, you, you feel like maybe what I'm saying or what I'm suggesting is that God is saying, hey, it's all good. Don't worry about the world out there. It's falling apart around you. Just get in your little bubble of Jesus and pray and everything's going to be fine. But far from it. Because God knows that you have an unstoppable urge for justice. He knows that you have an inbuilt sense of pursuing order and stability and safety and thriving in our world. Guess what? He put that in you. He made you that way. He knew you were going to have to spend a lot of your time working for the thriving of the world around you. But he also knew, and he put this in you, is the need for what he calls Sabbath, and what the Bible talks about as Sabbath. The need to stop. He knew you would be spending most of your time 
fighting and resisting and, and building up good things that are good and thriving of this world. But he also knew that you needed in one of the Ten Commandments, you needed to be about Sabbath. Stop and rest. Be still and know that I am God. And it sometimes bubbles up because we sometimes have so little of it. It bubbles up in us and we experience it. And we, if we talk to each other, it's like, yeah, yeah, you too. You feel the need too. And we had one of those moments at our leadership retreat months ago where we had 20-some people come out um, for an overnight weekend retreat. And the thing that bubbled up in our conversing and in our sort of uh, looking at what is our church and where are we going, the thing that bubbled up, the most common thing was the desire for Sabbath and rest and slowing down. You feel it. An Old Testament scholar and theologian, Walter Brueggemann says the ancient concept of Sabbath is the most difficult and most urgent commandments in our society. And some of you have never tried it. I'm guessing. I haven't, I haven't taken a poll. I haven't talked to all of you. I just know us and I know who we are and I know how we are. Some of you have never taken one day and just said this is going to be a Sabbath day. No shoulds, no have-tos. I'm just going to, I'm going to be still and enjoy the natural world around me. I'm going to be still and enjoy my family and friends and neighbors. I'm going to be still and enjoy silence, my bed, a nap. Maybe, you can, maybe you're going, Mark, a whole day? And I'd say, yes, a whole day. But if you keep arguing with me, I'll say, okay, fine, half a day, start there. But I'm pretty sure after that experience, you'll, a week later, you'll want to do a whole day. Just do it this week. I'm talking, if you think, is he talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. And then um, Zechariah 8 gives us another suggested action. The human action in Zechariah 8 is play. Because we read here, and it's so delightful. It's a delightful picture where, again, God is present in the city. God is dwelling. You notice the word dwell is in both of these passages. God dwelling in this world. And what do we read? What happens? Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each, each of them with cane in hand because of their age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. There will be old people... There will, there, there will be such little turmoil and war that people will live to that ripe old age where they get to depend on a cane. The city streets will not be used for chariots and tanks and warfare and the spilling of blood, but will be places where children safely play and frolic around. When the world works as God made it, the recipe includes the ingredient of playfulness. It's something that we were made for, to play. And Jesus suggested more than once that we need, if we're to enter into what he talked about as the kingdom of heaven, in a sense, if we are to get it and we're to get what it's like to be in God's presence, we have to become like little children. And I wonder if play is a part of that. I wonder if play is where Jesus is nudging us to go too. I know a dirty, speaking of children, I know a dirty little secret about all of you. Every single one of you, I know a dirty little secret. You used to be a child. You used to, yeah. 
and you used to know how to play and be playful. But some of you have lost that playful feeling and it's gone, gone, gone. <laughs> Whoa, ba-boom, 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 boom, boom. See, if you're freaking out right now at that playfulness, it might have to be with you. It might have to be you that I'm talking about. I didn't like this song because it got played on the radio way too much as I took high schoolers to school the last two years, but it will have finally a purpose in my life here as I read some of the lyrics to the song Stressed Out by 21 Pilots. We used to play pretend, give each other different names. We would build a rocket ship and then we'd fly it far away. Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at our face saying, wake up, you need to make money. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep and now we're stressed out. Is that you? Is that around you? Is that our world? It's made its way definitely into the church, as some have pointed out that since, um, I was getting the wrong, the wrong papers out here, since the age of Augustine, uh, down to the present era, Christians have often been suspicious of play. In fact, Augustine himself, for him, conversion to Christianity meant a conversion from a life of play. Even eating was sinful. We'll talk about that next week. Even eating was sinful if done in the spirit of pleasure for Augustine. And you can decide whether he was getting something a little bit wrong there. But here's what a, a, a brilliant theologian of our modern era, Jurgen Moltmann, says in his book, A Theology of Play. Here's a summary of five of the ideas in his out-of-print book called Theology of Play. Play foreshadows the joy of the end times where all manner of drudgery and disease and decay and death will be left behind. It is not a useless activity. He says in his book that play is a celebration of life lived to its fullest. And then he says that play in play we emulate God's action who did not create the universe because it was a necessity God is playful. He enjoys creating and playing. And, and then in his book, he also says that play relativizes our over-seriousness toward life, filling us with a spirit of joy and delight that carries over into all aspects of our existence. And lastly, one of his ideas is that, that, that comes from the Bible is that play is not time out from work. It is not rest time either. It is what he calls kingdom foreshadowing. And what does he mean by that? It's a momentary glimpse and escape into the future reality that God intended for all of us. In other words, it shouldn't be true what Friedrich Nietzsche, who, is a pastor's, who was a pastor's son, it shouldn't be true what he said when he said, no one in my parents' church ever had fun. In fact, you know, it should almost be the opposite, right? And so as we think about this and as we think about how 
the sermon series from this book of seculosity, it almost, it wasn't planned this way, but it's almost building into a, there's a lot of threads that are connecting each week if you've been here the last few weeks as we went from talking about technology and smartphones and getting into more wilderness spaces to talking last week about work and how we're, in a sense, often with our careers, putting our ladder, climbing up to the top of our ladder in our career only to realize we put the ladder up against the wrong wall to where we're talking today about what, how we're even working up our enoughness issues in our leisure time. All of this kind of pointing in different ways to some common threads, which maybe you could summarize as just slowing down and having enough space in your life to notice. Notice where God needs to meet you. Notice where you are in life and where God is ready with his voice to bring grace. And so let me just close with this very brief line from a poem that's much longer. It's by David White. And it's called, What to Remember When Waking. And this, this line has just been slaying me lately as I've, it's come back to me over and over again since I first heard it. He says, in that first hardly moment when you wake, there is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you begin your plans. In that first hardly noticed moment in which you wake, there is a small opening into the new day which closes the moment you make your plans. Let's pray. Our God of grace, meet us with your grace in our lives. If we're ready and we have openness to you, meet us, speak what we've longed to hear, and arrive in places where we're desperate. But if we don't know what we need, and if we're, there's just too much going on for us to even be able to see straight, would you help us in your own mysterious ways to crack open spaces and vulnerability and to find ways in which we might be still and know that you are God. And then we might even figure out how playfulness has a place in a life in which we are anchored in your presence. And in the words of the song we sung earlier, O come and make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.